since this is the season of Epiphany, Ginny Wilkie reads for us T.S. Eliot's poem about the wise men. The Journey of the Magi by T.S. Eliot A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep, and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels, galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melted snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men, cursing and grumbling, and running away, and wanting their liquor and women. And the night fires going out, and the lack of shelters. And the cities hostile, and the towns unfriendly, and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears saying that this was all folly. Then, at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness and three trees on the low sky. And an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this, we were led all that way for birth or death. There was a birth, certainly, we had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but I thought that they were very different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death.
Gentis lives in Kirk Michael and is a member of Pitlochry Baptist Church. Today, Larry imagines himself to be Herod in his dealings with the wise men. If you want to be king, you've got to play a game called King of the Mountain and play it well if you want to remain king. The rules? Simple. Anyone who tries to keep you from reaching the top, you throw them off until you reach it. Then it gets even simpler. You throw off anyone who tries to throw you off. They call me Head of the Great because I've done just that. And I can tell you I've had plenty of throwing to do to remain king. Oh, it does get tiresome being king. Everyone thought they'd seen the last of me when the Romans invaded. But sometimes throwing someone off the top of the mountain isn't achieved only by brutish force. You negotiate, you give gifts, if you take my meaning. You come to an understanding as to what suits them and how your interests can coexist with theirs. Between you and I, I always look for the long-term solutions and not just the temporary ones. And I foresee the day when the Romans will be just a distant memory. In fact, the Romans are easy to please alongside the Jews. The stories I could tell you about this ignorant religious rabble could fill the library of Alexandria. They're fanatical about their God and his law, and like it or not, I've got to keep good relations between my government and their ruling council. Their tiresome squabbles about the rules and temple traditions seem never-ending. One day, three wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, and these men were highly regarded for their knowledge of the stars, science, and medical matters. They were men of some consequence, not to be shunned or ignored, and they were asking where they could find a king of the Jews. A supplement of information might be helpful for you at this point. In the holy book, the Torah, it is written in many places that God was going to send a Messiah or Savior who would rescue the Jewish people from their sins, and a sort of heaven on earth would be the result. So these wise men came to Jerusalem, claiming that a star from the east was seen, announcing the birth of this Messiah or king. So I did my own private inquest as to the veracity of these claims, summoning the chief priests and scribes as to where this Messiah was supposed to be born. They answered me thus, In Bethlehem of Judah, this is what has been written by the prophets Micah, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Ah, so there it was. There was the trigger word, ruler. I will entertain no other ruler, which is just another word for king. Remember, the game of the mountain. I will let this low-life rabble of religious idiots do what they wish, as long as they don't threaten my rule. When these wise men came to see me requesting assistance, I said to them, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. <laughs> well, as you have guessed, I had no intention of worshipping this usurping child. He would be quickly and quietly disposed of. However, as time went by, these men from the east didn't turn to Jerusalem and report to me where this child was. They had tricked me and gone their way after visiting the child and his family, giving them expensive gifts. That enraged me, and if I ever see those so-called wise men again, they'll not do it a second time, I can tell you that. 
I had to act quickly and boldly, so I summoned my military commanders to the palace. Your orders are to encircle Bethlehem and the surrounding regions, letting no one in or out until you've accomplished the mission, which is to kill any babies under the age of two years old. That'll be all. Report to me when you've cleared the area of all of them. I could see the horrified looks on the faces of my commanding officers. Some of them wanted to protest, but they didn't dare. In their eyes, killing babies wasn't what they were trained for. But if you protest an order from the king, there's only one result, and that's execution. One thing in leadership is to never show weakness or hesitation. As I expected, the commander of the region came to me with a glazed look in his eyes, announcing that the mission was accomplished and that all the children from the age of two years old and under were now dead. If you think me a monster, so be it. But just think what would have been my fate if I were no longer wielding the scepter of power. What do you think these peasant swine would do to me? Have you thought of that? Also, it's often easier to get power than to hold on to it. So I continue to play the game. The only game that works for me is King of the Mountain.
Alan Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short God Spots, and today he wonders how clean you are. Tell me, did your grandparents tell you awful stories about how they used to only have one bath a week? Yuck! Oh no, we're all very clean in our family. My, my, but they are lowering the standards when they let people with that kind of a background become vicars, aren't they? Okay, so if you're so clean, tell me this. How many times a day do you wash your hands, eh? How many baths or showers a week? How often do you put the washing in the machine? Hmm, you really do take this cleanliness lark pretty seriously, don't you? I am impressed. So, um, how many times a day do you ask God to forgive you? How many times do you apologise to your husband or your wife? Eh, come on! Hey, you were the one who was boasting about how clean you were. Well, if you go to all that trouble for the outside, why not do at least as much to keep the inside clean too? Immaculate blessings to you. Doodly the new. Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 147. Praise ye the Lord. For it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is comely. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem, he gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart, and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars, and calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord, and of great power his understanding is infinite. The Lord lifteth up the meek, and casteth the wicked down to the ground. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving, sing praise upon the harp unto our God. Who covereth the heaven with clouds? Who prepareth rain for the earth? Who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains? He giveth to the beast his food, and to the young ravens which cry. He delighteth not in the strength of the horse, he taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, praise thy God, O Zion. For he hath strengthened the bars of thy gates, he hath blessed thy children within thee. He maketh peace in thy borders, and filleth thee with the finest of the wheat. He sendeth forth his commandment upon earth, his word runneth very swiftly. He giveth snow like wool, he scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes. He casteth forth his ice like morsels, who can stand before his cold. He sendeth out his word and melteth them. He causeth his wind to blow and the waters flow. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with psaltery and harp. Praise him with timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. 
everything that hath breath. Praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Powery spoke at Pitlochry Baptist Church about three women mentioned in Matthew's account of the genealogy of Jesus. Today we hear about Ruth. Ruth. Do you know that feeling when you realise that that pain in your chest is your heart actually breaking? When you've cried for so long that your tears have scarred your face? Then you'll know Ruth's story. 
One day married, so provided, provided for and protected, surrounded by family, expecting any day to become a mother, the future looks bright. The next bereaved and left with only her grieving mother-in-law and sister-in-law, all widowed, all vulnerable, all afraid. Only nine verses into Ruth's account and it's heartbreak upon heartbreak. What kind of story is this? Well, I think it's this kind of story. Ruth is about as unlike Rahab as it's possible to be. She's a respectable married woman, a Gentile married to a Jew. She's part of a, a close-knit family. As such, she'd be modest, demure, subservient to her husband. It's the world she knows and where she belongs. And then one day, all that changes. With the death of her husband, she loses not just her life partner, but the future she'd imagined for herself. Instead of a life of domestic and maternal duties and all the joys they bring, she's in widow's weeds. The first part of her story is just a wash with tears. One day, her mother-in-law, Naomi, broken and bitter, decides to return to her homeland, to Bethlehem, Bethlehem, in fact. She and Ruth and Orpah, the other widowed daughter-in-law, set off. But on the way, Naomi turns to them and says, you two go back. Thank you for being such great wives to my sons. And thank you for looking after me and being so kind to me. But go back to your own families. You'll find new husbands and you'll be safe and secure. They all break down and they cry together. Ruth and Orpah say, no, no, they're going with her. Naomi pleads with them. Go back, she says. I can give you nothing. God has raised his fist against me. You girls shouldn't share in this sorrow. And again, all three of them cry and cry. But eventually, Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye and leaves her and walks home. Let's pause there. Because this is Ruth's defining moment. This is her fork in the road. One road leads home to her parents. There'd be no shame or disgrace. On the contrary, this road leads to almost certain remarriage, reunited with a sister-in-law, safety, protection. She's a vulnerable young widow, still in deep mourning. Who would condemn her? The other way leads to the unknown, into a foreign land, risking her life, risking everything. And in that tension between the two roads, the two lives, God's grace pours in and Ruth says the words that will change her destiny. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. In that moment, Ruth professes her faith in Naomi's God and vows that she will stay with Naomi forever. She was stepping out into the unknown with extraordinary courage and faith, filled with the grace of the God of her in-laws. Once in Bethlehem, Ruth's life becomes unrecognisable from her life before in Moab. Then she was the wife of a wealthy man, cosseted and confined to her home. Now she has to go out into the outside world and find food for her mother-in-law and herself. So she goes into fields and picks up the stalks of barley left behind by the harvesters. This is Ruth's idea and it's, it's hard to really grasp the magnitude of this change in her position in life. Maybe it's like you all discovered that I had my house repossessed and that I was now working in Queen Street Station cleaning the toilets just to make enough money for Mirabel and I to eat. 
One of the main differences between me and Ruth, of course, is that throughout this whole account, Ruth never complains or utters words of regret. She is gracious and kind and quietly accepting. Her character endears her even more to Naomi and eventually to Boaz. Remember him? The son of Rahab. All grown up and a wealthy landowner. In fact, the owner of the land that Ruth's been gleaning from. The second half of Ruth's story sees the tears of grief and heartache all dry up and in their place is blessing after blessing. Ruth and Boaz behave with honour, love and compassion. Boaz becomes the family redeemer and marries Ruth and she has a son, Obed, who becomes grandfather to King David. Naomi had believed herself abandoned by God. Ironically, it was her non-Jewish daughter-in-law who had the deep faith that God was always with them. Just as she vowed to stay with Naomi forever, Ruth trusted that God would never leave them, even through the bad, sad, painful times, especially through the tear-stained times. God worked out his purpose through Ruth, from childless, grief-stricken widow into joyful wife, mother and ancestor of the Messiah. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. True.